Yeah, I mean, I think as musicians, we're all um, a product of, of our musical upbringing, and that's everything that we've heard over the course of our life, you know, so whatever music you're exposed to, whatever sounds you're exposed to, I mean, those are going to form your identity as a musician if you're you know you're being honest and you're you're outputting what's what's really what's come through you you know and so i think as artists it's just trying to keep keep yourself from you know getting buffeted too much by the winds of change and and by what's trendy and what what other people are doing and to stay true to the vision that you've been building and you've been building it slowly over the course of your life and so you know i hope i can i can be you know a good channel i hope i can I can represent, you know, the beautiful cultures that I've been so blessed to learn, whether it was, you know, my time spent in New York learning from from the house dancers, some of the original house dancers who came up with the style and and taught me about the music and, you know, the influence of the loft, uh, David Mancuso's loft in New York and, you know, the, the whole approach of, of, of DJs, you know, from then all the way up until now. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think I'm a product of, of what I've experienced and, you know, I hope to, to keep being able to represent that. That was Rise Ashen, a musician from the group Sela and Rise. And in this episode, I talk with four artists and musicians about their work on the Anchorage Museum's new exhibition, titled Listen Up, Northern Soundscapes. The exhibition explores and considers northern soundscapes to better understand humans' relationship with, understanding of, and impact on the natural world. A soundscape is made up of all the sounds of a given environment. Artists and musicians were given a soundscape that they remixed using their distinctive styles. Their music styles range from acoustic and classical to hip-hop, ambient, and electronica. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. In this first conversation, I talked to David Betchkel. David is a soundscape specialist and biologist at the National Park Service's Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division. David responded to this soundscape of Ninana. And this is his remix. Here's David Betchkel. So I was reading through your page on the U.S. National Park Service website, and under skills and interests, you say natural soundscapes and dark skies. Can you explain the part about dark skies? Oh, sure. Uh, So just like we might try to seek out landscapes that are quiet and have uh, a natural listening experience. Likewise, we might want to try to find places where the 
sky hasn't been artificially illuminated by human lighting, you know? Mm -hmm. And Alaska is obviously really rich in that sort of experience. Uh, we have some of the most pristine skies in the on the continent. And, you know, lots of people love to come here to see the, the northern lights. I mean, I myself, you know, I don't spend an enormous amount of time stargazing, but I really appreciate being able to sort of reach out as it were into the cosmos, you know, and, and I don't know, I, I draw a lot of inspiration from the sense of, you know, there's a lot out there and, and over the, especially, you know, I, mean, I, I like it. A lot of people feel small, you know, they say it makes you feel, feel small, but a lot of ways it makes me feel very big because it, you know, I'm part of something that's been evolving over billions of years, galaxies colliding with each other and kind of pulling on each other with gravity. It's wonderful. <laughs> that's great. Have you always been like that, or was it something that kind of developed over time as you got more into audio, or or what? Oh, I mean, I think I have always had a sort of thoughtful, reflective personality, but I mean, my parents had a lot to do with that, too. They, they gave me a lot of space to sort of spend time doing creative things. We spent a lot of time outside and traveling as a kid. I was fortunate and, and pretty privileged to do that. One of the things my dad liked the best was, you know, he considered it a great honor if we could kind of ditch the tent altogether and just camp out under the stars, you know, mm -hmm. lay on your back, look up. And, you know, both sounds and skies are sort of unified in that experience because not only do you get the nice view of the, of the stars as you're falling asleep, but as you wake up in the, in the morning, you can kind of, especially in the springtime, hear the dawn chorus and you know it's like you can't really use your eyes in, in the wee hours of the morning you really have to use your ears i think that that kind of gets to the heart of what we're going to talk about today which is soundscapes so a soundscape is all of the sounds of a place or an environment what soundscapes do you think have been important to you throughout your life it's a great question and by way of answering it, I'd like to just, there's something that your question implies, right? Um, when you say the soundscape is all the sounds that are present in an environment, mm -hmm. it sort of implies, you know, that there's something in, of our body, and our eyes are like this too, uh, that we reach out into the environment around us, right? And, and there's almost like a three-dimensional bubble around us that we interact with sounds. People always want to know this. They always are asking me, like, how far away can you hear something? Uh, and, and I think that's really a nice part of soundscapes is that it actually anchors you in a place through this sort of extension of your own body. Um, I guess uh, the point of all that and what I like to listen to is I like to listen to all different kinds of um, those spaces. You know, I like to try to seek out and find different ones. Some of them, like if you, I'm sure a lot of people like to do this, get close to, you know, beautiful white water or flowing water. The water's moving over the rocks, and, and it's quite energetic, right? You get in that environment, it's like very small. Everything, you're sort of wrapped up, and you become a very small uh, thing that's sort of surrounded and very intimate in these spaces in the rocks and in the bubbles and the, and the little, you know, pouring cascades, this sort of stuff. But likewise, you know, I mean, I feel like Alaskans and a lot of people in general can appreciate, you know, whether it's you're going out on a ski in the winter time, or you're up on, on top of a mountain, maybe, uh, you suddenly your acoustic space and the feeling of that, uh, it becomes vast, mm -hmm. you know? And I also, I like that too. I feel like 
someone's relationship with the sounds or the soundscapes that are around them is obviously very dependent on where they're from, but it influences them in a different way. How do you think that those soundscapes have influenced you, the ones that have been a part of your life? Well, I mean, as soon as you start to spend time listening, I guess there's sort of a fascination that can come with just sort of the beauty of hearing, you know, the phenomena itself. You hear the sound of a white-crowned sparrow or something like this. You get to know it a little better every time. I think Aldous Huxley... Uh, wrote about, you know, he had a book called The Art of Seeing, but I think it works just as well for hearing, uh, where he sort of says, you know, the more times that you you see something, you know, say, you know, you get up every morning and you look out the window, you're going to see it in all different light, in the sunrise maybe, or you're going to look at night before you go to bed out the window, whatever it is, and you're seeing this same scene illuminated in all different ways, in all different weather, all different times of year, whatever it is, and you be you get a sense of knowing that thing better and better, better. And he actually asserted that you see it better, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I don't know, I guess I, I sort of feel like the first part is just, you know, appreciating these beings that are around us, their voices are, or, you know, um, other sounds which have their own sort of animation. Right. Uh, but then on, on top of all that, I feel like quietude or the ability to sort of find a state of uninterrupted, a concentration, you know, that's not really the sound itself, but finding a peaceful place of solitude can let you appreciate fine details and little moments. It's like you can just sort of soak that stuff up. That's absolutely what I'm all about. <laughs> yeah. Is there something specific that you understand better because you now understand its sound better? Hmm. Oh, I'd say many, many things. <laughs> It's hard exactly to, um, without getting very technical, it can be kind of hard to explain this, but uh, one of the ways I spend a lot of time studying sense is actually by using my eyes. Mm -hmm. um, I'll look at a picture of sound. I do this when I'm making music as well. A lot of the time when I'm mixing sounds, um, editing sounds, I'm actually looking at the images. And I'm. it's called a spectrogram. And you can take the sort of forms of sound and align them, overlay them on top of each other. Or, you know, in the case of analysis, uh, where if you're going out and, and recording a sound, looking at it and seeing the features on the sound um, can really help understand how an object is radiating energy, how it might be absorbing energy, you know, how all these sorts of physical things that really, I mean, is the fundamental aspect of sound. It's some sort of movement. Yeah. Do you think there's an intersection between sound and biology? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in ecology, you know, animal communication is one of the most essential ways that animals communicate with each other is using sounds. Uh, biologically speaking, too, um, being able to listen for predators or other types of sounds that might alert you to something happening. You know, you're hiking on a trail, you hear a rock clattering down a face and you, you know, you look up and you move to get out of the way. Uh, these sorts of things are essential to life processes of animals. And how long have you been working with sound? Oh gosh. Well, for my work at the park service, it's been about a decade now. And I, I love, loved every moment of it. It's really a unique job. I never would have thought I would have got into this sort of stuff. Um, I'm glad I did. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, I was doing all sorts of little um, 
audio experiments and working in live sound and, and you know I was on the road with a band for a while where I was you know I was doing quite a bit with sound before that too. How do you think sound helps you connect to a certain place? Because I'm I'm thinking now I'm thinking since we were talking about the sounds of Alaska before and then I'm thinking of like juxtaposing that with like say the sounds of a, a big metropolis, you know? How do you how do you think that those sounds considering those two places helps you connect to those individual places? I'm sort of relying in this answer in part on some of the work by Armory Schaefer and others that were part of uh, Simon Fraser University. There was sort of the earliest stuff um, with a lot of sense of place and the ge geography of sound mm -hmm. came out of that group. And that was in the mid seventies, late seventies. And they really talked about things called um, keynote sounds. And so, you know, you have a very iconic uh, thing that represents the sound of a bell tower or a foghorn or something in the city that's, you know, that's just, there's nothing like it. Uh, the sound, maybe if you live near, you know, one of these bridges that moves up and down and that dinging of the bell, whatever it is, you know, and it's fun to challenge people to, you know, if you ask somebody, you know, unprimed to name five sounds they heard today a lot of people really struggle to do that uh and i i don't mean it in a too negative of a sense but i sort of i guess i the first sense of you know you have to actually start listening in order to get a sense of place and when i'm talking about parks and and quietude silence the lack of combustion engines and other sounds in parks you know I often say like, you know, in order for people to really have a sense of what that heritage of quietude is, what their, the value of quietude is, they have to actually experience it first. It has to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, something that just came to mind is, um, and I think that we touched on this a little bit earlier, but what does sound do to us? You know, like for example, I've been in, in big cities where, the sound never stops, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and to me, that that does something to a person rather than something like, or living in a place like Alaska where you can isolate yourself and you can kind of achieve that quietude that you're talking about. Well, it's a great question. You, you built a bit on, uh, it builds a little bit on what you said before about how is sound important for biology? You know, human mm -hmm. beings are animals too. <laughs> We're part of the biological world. And so, yeah. you know, this actually is a question that's much more deeper reaching than just our experience. You know, um, we all, most mammals uh, have a stress response. We release hormones uh, when, we're un, when we're stressed. And, you know, when animals and people live in chronically noisy environments, they're constantly stressed out. And, you know, even the World Health Organization has listed about 35 decibels to be the point where that cortisol response sort of kicks in and you start to release stress hormones. And so there's standards uh, internationally for classrooms, for bedrooms where people are sleeping, and 35 decibels is where we recommend. We use that for campgrounds too, here in parks. But as you might imagine, you know, it's, it, it's similar for animals like wolves or uh, moose animals that might be disturbed by snow machine noise or other things, you know, they're also having a cortisol response when they're exposed to these loud events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's, um, it would be interesting to see 
how something like a wolf that has lived in Alaska its entire life and you put it in like the Bronx Zoo, you know, like what would, what would be the effect on that animal? Yeah. I mean, I sort of, I would pity it. That's for sure. <laughs> Is there a sound that brings you right back to a place or a time? Oh boy. What a great question. It's strange because, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, sound has a very, you know, like where, where we might have our, you know, everyone talks about scent memory, like, you know, where a smell can like really bring back a very precise memory. To me, one of the things I love about sound, and I think in music, this is a good example, uh, where sound has this sort of imprecision or um, real abstract it, it draws on a different part of our brain than memory, I think. It has a lot of, you know, without uh, just sort of, I, I suspect that there's a more similarity to the, the sort of pure creativity that you experience in dreams mm -hmm. and the experience of sound. So like, I don't know about you, but to answer that question, I don't know that I, I do have a, of a particular place that, that really draws back, you know, I, but I get a lot of these washes, like big buildings, or I'm in like a, like in a subway in Seattle or something, you know, like where there's like these really particular, like sort of vague memories that you get when you wake up from a dream, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of my answer to that question. And I think that it might be diesel, you know, the smell of diesel on the docks in Seward would, will forever remind me of my dad's boat. And I was trying to think of something that is a sound that kind of brings me right back to a place. And I think off the top of my head, it would be cannons blasting, um, avalanches at Alieska. So I think that 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 would be my my sound that brings me right back to a place. Okay. Yes. I mean, you know, now that you frame it in that way, I suppose you could probably say, like, if I had to pick, like, a time of year, you know, the peak of uh, solstice, or actually, a, let's go, like, one month before solstice, okay? Like, the beginning of June. And you get the sound where you're really starting to hear the sound of flowing water. It's like, I like to call it... A, water sliding downhill, you know, like it just, that part of the summer where there's just sort of this beautiful effortless sunlight and you get to, you know, everyone, every place in Alaska has got little different birds, but since you're talking about the Kenai Peninsula, um, you know, varied thrush, just that kind of, oh gosh, what a beautiful summertime feel that is. And what was your reaction to the soundscape clip you received? It was a short clip of a raven in flight, and you can kind of hear its wings uh, flap, and then it has a single cry uh, out at the end. And I, I was sort of surprised at how short it was, and it left me with sort of a lot of uh, dangling questions. You know, it's like where's where's this bird going? <laughs> you know, this thing, something like that. That was my initial reaction. I like how your your initial reaction was to fill in the story. Yeah. And, you know, it got me thinking right off the bat, you know, you know, here's a, here's a bird that we could hear all over the state. You know, we, we hear them everywhere from even, you know, we get them up on the mountain at Denali 
climbers caching their their food at you know 14 camp you can hear ravens on the audio record if we when we recorded up there so they're all over the place and and I, I started to think you know yeah here is sort of a symbolic creature that is somewhat like ourselves you know we rove about and we have I don't know but I wanted it to be uh, to have a bit of Ninana in it too though I don't know Ninana very very well it's a place that's familiar enough to me mm-hmm. and so I started to think about like okay so here's here's sort of a a being that is all around us but what how does it manifest itself in this place this particular community and of course you know you get drawn into the people that have lived there for such a long long time That's great what you just said about how does how does this creature manifest itself in this kind of atmosphere what did you come to understand you know how it reacted or how it interacted with that environment well you know i guess in the end i really approached it with a more of an abstract way of thinking about it you know uh I started to think about other ways that people might have moved around Inanna, you know, a, a pair of snowshoes, for instance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the, the piece is called Last Winter. And, you know, it's somewhat of a relativistic thing. You could say this winter in 2020, last winter, and it means something. But you could have said that in 1901, and it means something else, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I started to think about, like, okay, what if we had this sort of iterative ratcheting sense of last winter and we keep tunneling back and back well the raven's still there oh i like that so you basically came up with a theme you know the last winter like what was last winter like what was the winter before that like Mm -hmm. i often record during the winter too so that's sort of a you know it's a it's a private contemplative time for a lot of alaskans i think we sort of it's a chance you know the summer's hectic it's busy you're you're running around Mm -hmm. you're you're hiking around, whatever it is, catching fish. But, you know, the winters are time to, like, sort of reflect. And is that why you record during the winter? Well, yeah, I just have time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Did your relationship to that clip, did it change over the course of creating your work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, that I sort of... I kind of already described it, you know, like the the sense of it unfolding out. I like to think, you know, I like to think about a lot of things through different time scales. It's fun. That's fun creatively to stretch out and to sort of think about things spatially. Like we we started, we talked a little bit about the cosmos. I enjoy that sort of thing, like reaching out, like wow, the Earth is getting tugged on by galaxies all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. and that sort of idea. Like you know, it's I appreciate just walking on the Earth and feeling my feet against the Earth too. That's a different scale to appreciate the Earth. I really like how you have this cosmic perspective of every, of everything. It makes life very. I don't know. It's it, it's sort of a fun way to live. How do you think sound can help other people connect to a place? Well, it's funny because I'd almost like to invert your question a bit. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's if you want to connect to a place, you know, open your ears and just slow down. Take a, take a second, you know. If you're on a, a trip or you're busy, you're moving through an environment, just stop for a second, you know, like stand still. If you're moving, a lot of times your clothes are moving, you're you know, you're breathing hard, whatever it is, you know, like you're talking with people. Yeah. Just take a little second and just listen. That's, that is, you know, 
in the most fundamental way, that's how sound can connect someone to a place is just by giving them the space and, you know, sort of reflection, ability to reflect on it. Being present and aware of your kind of your current standing. Yeah, I, I really do think, and I think others have said this too, Bernie Krause and others, that you, you really pretty much have to sit still in order to hear well. That's great. So since we're all moving around so often, uh, we're not hearing everything as exactly as we should. I mean, I don't know. There's a bit of a value judgment in that question, you know, where I don't know what people should or shouldn't be hearing, you know. I But I, I guess I, if you really want to appreciate or sort of sink your roots down, so here's a, I mean, if you thought of a fun perspective on things, you imagine a tree. A tree, uh, its whole life, it's fixed in place. The tree puts its roots down. It can't move. It can only move by growing. And it, trees are sort of the ultimate calculator of their environment. They grow and move in subtle ways as light conditions change. They are, sense the minerals in the soil and the water that's down in the soil. And they move and grow to respond to that. You know, I, I sort of feel like human beings aren't plants, so we will never be able to sit so still. But there's value and, uh, I don't know, a sort of form of wealth and um, that you can draw from sort of emulating a tree for just a little while. Yeah. Do you feel like your relationship to soundscapes in general has changed over the past year while working on this project? Hmm. Well, it was a great challenge. You know, I think there's a lot of people who have been part of the, the part of this that are, you know, they're professional musicians. They're out there. They're, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, you know, doing this as a full-time job. And, and I guess I really appreciate, I wanted to say thanks and, and just appreciate, show my appreciation for being involved at all. So I guess that's probably the way I learned the most is like, how can I bring something into this music that says something about myself, says something about the place that I live, but also that, you know, I hope that when people are listening to these song, this song, um, that they can find something in it that they enjoy and they appreciate and that just sort of speaks to them too. So that was a fun challenge. Usually I'm making recording music for my own listening. I don't really try to go out of my way to share it much. So <laughs> So at the end of the day, do you do you feel like you achieved that? You you achieved creating this piece of art that kind of exemplified everything that you wanted it to? Yeah, in short, yes, I, I do. I'm proud of of the this piece and I think that, you know, if anything, I hope people find it kind of relaxing and that they can get a sense of, you know, let the time rewind itself backwards and backwards and backwards as far as they like. Yeah, last year and last year and last year. Yeah. Yep. In this conversation, I talked to Rise Ashen and Charlotte Kamenuk of the band Sela and Rise, both are musicians based out of Canada. Rise and Charlotte responded to this soundscape of Seldotna. And this is their remix. 
Here's Rise Ashen and Charlotte Kamenuk. Can you describe the name of the band? Sila is an Inuktitut word, and that is the name for the Inuit throat singers in the group. And we chose Sila as a name because it means the easiest way to translate the word. It's it could easily mean weather, the weather outside. It could mean outside. It could mean the atmosphere. Um, and in our homelands, in Inuit Nunangat, sila is boss. Sila is what's around us. You know, it's if sila is in a bad mood, <laughs> there's bad weather, there's blizzards, we have to follow sila. Um, and so it's just like honoring our homelands. It's honoring the power of our lands and the spirits in our lands. So mm-hmm. as um, for the Inuit throat singers, myself, Cynthia Pitsulak, and Charlotte Carlton, we used that as a name for our group. And then Sila and Rise. Um, Rise can tell you about his name, but that's the part of our band. Yeah, so I'm the rise in the Silian Rise, and uh, rise was a metaphor for, you know, the Phoenician mythology of the phoenix that rises up from the ashes, and uh, started using that name about 25 years ago, uh, working as a hip-hop producer, and it was just a metaphor for taking old sounds and making them fresh. How long have you both been working together? Sila and Rise has been a group since 2015. Uh, Sila has been around for about 15 years and you know rise has been doing his thing for decades as well but as a group sila and rise we came together in 2015 um when rise was commissioned to do a an event at the museum of nature and he wanted to incorporate some live um inuit throat singing in his dj set and so he had worked with cynthia in the past so he contacted cynthia cynthia and i have been singing together for over 15 years so she contacted me asked if i was interested we started working together for this live show but rise was recording all the time that we were rehearsing and we ended up putting out a an album in 2016 that was nominated for a Juno, and then we put out a second album in 2019 that was also nominated for a Juno. So it's been like six years already. It's been a pretty crazy ride. What was that first time you two worked together? What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, for myself growing up in Canada, I was a little bit, um, you know, I didn't know much about Indigenous music and I only started learning about it really in around 2010, 2011, uh, when I started collaborating with um, a Southern Indigenous uh, artist called Flying Down Thunder. He's Algonquin from from our area here. 
And, uh, and through going to many events with uh, an Indigenous focus, I had met Cynthia and I was just so blown away by it. And so, yeah, it was just such a pleasure to, to, to start to the, you know, to start to create the alchemy that's, that underlies our band and to, to play together. And, uh, but it was, it was, it was very rudimentary. It was, it was kind of an embryonic version of the band. Um, we were, you know, we were experimenting with me DJing and, and then with a looper and, you know, I wasn't, I don't think I was contributing uh, what I ended up contributing in the end, which is something much more than, than just a DJ collaborating. I liked how you just described the relationship as alchemy, indicating that maybe it has kind of this magical quality. Yeah, it totally does, dude. It's uh, it's way bigger than I think all of us. It's just, uh, you know, it's this uniting force of, of music coming together and music from very different perspectives coming together. And uh, it's it's a really beautiful thing. Was there a point maybe in the studio or possibly when you two were jamming or something like that where both of you realized um, or maybe recognized that alchemy? Rise has this amazing studio in his home that's absolutely lovely to work in. And I think that's one of the pieces of our... <laughs> of the magic that happens is this amazing space and we get to just hang out together as friends and as uh, band members. And, you know, when we first went in there, Cynthia and I were super excited because we, you know, we've been throat singing for so long, but, you know, putting in fresh sounds is something that we hadn't done before. And so it was immediate. Like we got in there, the three of us were excited. Um, and then once we started recording, it blew all of our minds away. And we just knew that, you know, this was something that we were going to continue doing. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, we figured out a way to do it because initially, like Rice said, it was like a DJ set. And then now he's got a electronic drum kit where he programs the beats of our songs in and so he can play live with us so it's like the like the magic is there when we're performing together when we're on stage together that's where like the real you know you can really feel that energy and we all get kind of hypnotized and we go into some another universe you know i always mm -hmm. picture myself kind of like elevating and just kind of leaving my body and i just go into these really crazy like vibes you know like the vibrations change with us it's like a trance. Very much like a trance. And it's beautiful when other people get to experience it with us because we can see, you know, other people traveling as well. How important is the space you work in to the music you create? It's so important. We've had gigs where the audience is fully present and they're with us and they're excited and they're in the moment and it really you know elevates our energy and the exchange between us as musicians and artists and with the other humans around us it's incredible what comes out because we do a lot of kind of like freestyling sometimes you know sometimes what you hear in a song on an album is not going to sound the way the same when we do it live, you know? So mm -hmm. it's extremely important because there's other times where we get hired to do corporate gigs where, you know, we're there to entertain 
maybe like government officials or like other people who are working, you know, in bureaucracy or in corporations. And it's so different for them. They're really not they don't know what to do with themselves because they're standing in suits and they're, you know, coming from meetings and <laughs> it can sound rise. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's definitely an optimal setting to experience our music. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's, uh, you know, one of the most beautiful, I mean, we've had so many absolutely incredible magical moments when we've been playing, you know, some of the, like in, in we're in, um, Two, two, two summers ago, we were in Norway in the Arctic Circle in Norway, and we were playing at a Sami festival, and we were in a in a huge like a, sort of a huge yurt with about two hundred people playing, and it was the closing night of the festival, and you know the people were there, they were they were a hundred percent like they had already heard us do our our main stage set, and mm -hmm. this was like an int intimate setting with two hundred people dancing in a in a tent, you know. And, the, and it was still light out. It's like two in the morning and it's, the sun's shining. And it was just like, it was unreal, you know, like a beautiful connection with the people. But then we've, we've also done a lot of, you know, like all musicians, we do, we do whatever we can, you know? And so some of the gigs, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I know what Charlotte's talking about. Uh, there was a convention, a, a travel agent convention that we played and, and I mean, they were terrified. Like they were literally horrified. <laughs> they were, they were drinking their drinks and they were completely on the opposite end of the room and they were cowering. Like they were just, you know, almost like shielding themselves from us and just, you know, they were, they were horrified. So I mean, it, it we've, we've played for the full spectrum of incredible to like, Oh, cringeworthy, you know? <laughs> I feel like that's a rite of passage for any band is to have those horror stories. Oh yeah. Yeah, you definitely grow a lot, um, you know, as this as this family together when you're going through that. Mm -hmm. It's great, though, because, you know, there's been times where it's just like it's we actually feel like we're not really performing for anyone in those in those times because they're not paying attention to us. They're kind of trying to avert themselves from us. So then we just turn it into a rehearsal. We're just like, all right, guys, let's just practice some new songs. Mm -hmm. Let's figure this out. Let's like practice on our stage presence. Let's practice on our stage banter, things like that. So we always take opportunities wherever we can to just better ourselves as performers and as musicians and as even human beings. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's always fun. You know, it's always yeah. such a beautiful experience. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it, that it is this constant growing and being a better artist every single time you play. Yeah, and I forget who, who the musician was, a very famous musician who said that you'll learn more from the terrible gigs and even going to listen to, you know, really bad concerts, you learn more from those than you do from the great ones. And I think in a lot of ways it's true, you know, it, you know it's important to, to experience how bad it can get. <laughs> For sure. And, and, you know, I think that... Um, the fact that both of you brought up this situation is a testament to it because um, the first situation you guys brought up was something that was uh, maybe not this moment that was super intimate, that was ethereal and everyone's singing along with the music. It was, it was something where it was a bunch of travel agents and they were cowering in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Rise, do you think being a b-boy in Montreal in the 80s made any lasting impacts on the way you make music? 
Oh, for sure. And I mean, I still, I still dance quite a bit. I mean, we have, we have sessions all the time. And uh, we, prior to the pandemic, uh, my partner Tangent and I, we were putting on a monthly house dance practice in Ottawa and it, it was getting huge. Like we were doing it at the National Arts Center, which is, you know, it's a big uh, arts center. And there was hundreds of people coming there. You know, we were, we had guest DJs from all around and it was just a really wonderful thing. So, I mean, dance has always been part of how I listen to music. Um, but that, that was one of the first, first things I thought when I first heard Cynthia, um, I think it was at, I forget if it was at the Mercury Lounge, it was, it was somewhere like that. Uh, and I heard her perform and I, I just thought like, wow, you know, it's really like a B-girl battle. Mm -hmm. you know, the way, the, the, the attitude in it is, you know, more than, than just like trading fours in a jazz band. It's, it's really like there's a B-girl attitude to it. And so definitely, you know, to me, there's, there's something very, very hip hop about, about throat singing. Yeah, that's great. And I think that it kind of establishes it as like you just said, like a battle, there's this thing that, or it is this thing that is active and you need to put energy into it to kind of propel it forward. Yeah, I mean, Charlotte can speak more about the, about that. Yeah, there's, um, it's a really beautiful connection that you have with your partner. Um, and the songs too are ancient and there's a feeling of, your ancestors and holding sacred space when you're throat singing. There are songs that, you know, interpret sounds of nature and sounds of animals. And you can't help but wonder, you know, where did these songs come from? Who made these songs and where were they created? Because they're so old that we don't know who created them and we don't know how old they are. And we don't know where they come from because our, Inuktitut is an oral language, so all of our knowledge and teachings are passed down just through generations. And so now in 2021, we have amazing, beautiful, traditional Inuit throat songs that have survived colonialism. You know, they have survived genocide by, you know, the Canadian government and by the churches. And so I think one of the most powerful moments um, that we have, and I hear this all the time, um, when we sing together, there's a lot of times where we're dancing around, you know, we're looking at the audience and we're just having a really good time. And then once we start getting into the traditional kind of throat singing part, we're, we just gravitate towards each other and and either like myself or Charlotte or myself and, or, and Cynthia will end up holding each other and we're just so close to each other like we become one we become you know there's two of us and we're singing one song we're we're going to the same place and our rhythm our poise everything about it just transcends and so there's a lot there's a lot there but there's also you know that really fun competition there that really friendly game of like hey like can you go this fast can mm -hmm. you go this can you go as fast as i can or can you drop the beat in a second and still stay on beat with me can you switch songs there's this really really fun friendly competitive aspect to it that you know there's so many different variants of what throat singing is to each person but it really dates back to like thousands of years and you know it's a great way to stay warm obviously it's very cold up north and so like throat singing will um wear 
breathing heavily in and out, you know, we're raising our body temperature, we're using our entire body, we're holding each other, we're in an embrace, you know, it's a great way to like warm up your body. It's a great way to, with, um, we carry our children's on our backs in Na'amauti and the vibrations carry through from our chest into our backs and our, our babies are lying up against our backs, just kind of being comforted by these growling sounds of and these vibrations and, um, It's also, they kind of like, there's stories of, you know, throat singing, invoking spirits to like help their husbands or, you know, their family members who are out hunting to help like it, give them luck with their, with their hunting journeys and things like that. There's so much going on. Charlotte, I really like what you just said about embracing and that you're going to the same place when you're sitting up there on the stage in these moments with your bandmates. Yeah, it really is a journey and it's really beautiful. And I'm, we're so privileged and so lucky to be able to have these experiences and to share them with everyone too. So I read that the group has described the band as combining traditional Inuit throat singing with electronic dance music. Do you feel like that's the type of music you originally set out to make or did it evolve into that? I think Rice can speak to that because we all kind of got together from his invite and his studio. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, the interest has always been, you know, my musical, per my personal journey that I've been on has always been, um, you know, at the, at the, I would say the the intersection of of traditional music and and futuristic music and so you know i mean whatever you want to call it, edm is kind of a, a loaded uh term but you know it's not it's not really edm i would say it's a it's a mix of of house music um you know instrumental hip-hop and and then you know the incredible tradition that is throat singing um so you know did we set out to i i you know i don't think we i i still don't really feel like i'm really driving the ship at all here it's it's kind of happening through me mm -hmm. and through through charlotte and cynthia and and charlotte um I, I feel like we're we're definitely spontaneously creating this this thing based on our lived experience on each of our lived experiences and uh and what's coming out is is something that's uh you know we're, we're not really driving the ship i think it's it's this this alchemy i think is is the closest way i can i can relay it and often you know like when we first started out first of all i mean this was just a really a, a little sonic experiment uh you know it's it, i never expected that you know six years later we'd be doing international interviews because of it i mean it's it's just uh you know, it's it's kind of it's completely taken over. <laughs> Sometimes I joke with Charlotte. I'm like, this is my new life now. Like it's it's incredible because it's really resonated with people, and you know, it's it's wonderful. It's just the it's an amazing thing. So you kind of have to just go with the flow, and and it's leading us into all these. You know, it's taking us to across the world, and it's it's opening up all these collaborations with other incredible artists. And we're working on our third album right now, and some incredible guests on it. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's this beautiful journey. And I've, I, I think for me, I've just kind of given myself up to it and I've just decided I'm just going to just do what, what's, what's asked of me and just mm -hmm. keep going as much as I can, because it's, it just, I never cease to, to marvel at the, the result and the energy that's coming out. And, and I think it's, it's really timely also in terms of the reconciliation aspect as well. It's, it's beautiful, you know, I'm really happy to be a part of it and feel also very blessed and privileged to be working with them. Mm -hmm. 
So if if a landscape is all of the sounds of an environment, what soundscapes throughout your life do you think have been important to you? The first thing that comes to my mind is um, where I'm from in Iglurik, it's very flat. And so the sky takes up all of the space because it's flat 360 degrees all around as far as the eye can see. And so the sky is massive. And when it's windy, when it's really windy, there's this really beautiful hollow sound that happens all around us. Um, and it's a sound that I can't explain, but it's something, it's a feeling that I have that stays with me. And it goes, it goes even into like, whenever it's windy outside and you can hear that whistling through the window, that is so comforting to me. Um, even like we would have blizzards so bad that our houses are shaking and the power would go out. And that is such a feeling of comfort to me. Um, so the environment does have like a really huge, you know, impact. There's the ocean, like all of Inuit communities are located on coasts. And so we all live by the ocean and the sound of the waves, um, sound of the tides coming in and out, you know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, yeah. And animals, dogs, ravens, you know, there's so, there's so much wildlife in the Arctic. A lot of times people think it's like a barren land, but it's so full of life. And there's many, many sounds that come with that beautiful, the beautiful life that inhabits the Arctic. How about you, Rise? Uh, for me, I mean, you know, there's so much. It's like my whole life, I feel, is just uh, a series of, of sound bites. And it's, uh, you know, from my mother singing to me when I was a kid to hearing, you know, traditional Congolese music when I was seven, eight, nine, ten at my best friend's house. And my other friend's dad being a, a DJ and playing Jamaican music for me for the first time. I see like my finger on the play record and play button when I was first hearing the electro and the early hip hop that was coming out in the, in the late 80s and uh, early 80s rather and uh this yeah like so much music just uh, you know and then the all my days as a dj in nightclubs you know the, the house music and it was always that last track that i would always play and i would always pull something really out from left field something that people weren't expecting and just these beautiful moments of you know the sweat stained dance floor and the, the lights coming on and the bouncers starting to chase people away and just everyone all exhausted and soaking wet and just you know having that one last dance where they're like clamoring for me to play another track you know it's it's all that stuff it's just this this like uh sweaty mess of of beautiful living you know mm -hmm. do you remember any of those tracks that you kind of pulled out of left field for sure tons of them tons i mean uh just, uh, I mean, I mean, there, there, there's so many. I mean, I have a folder for those. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I mean, it's it's usually stuff with vocals, usually soulful, usually something where it's speaking to some part of the human condition that everybody can relate to. And you know, it's it's amazing. You know, mm -hmm. you know, be it reggae or R and B, just just beautiful songs where the they're really relaying, you know, the the beautiful, you know, the beautiful struggle that it is. You know. Are there any soundscapes that are currently important to you? The voices of my children, the voice of my mother, voices of Indigenous people, 
those are soundscapes that should be everywhere and that should be heard by everyone, <laughs> simply put. Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I'm just, um, I'm having this kind of a moment with dance music because it's it's become this, you know, this uh, thing that we're, we're not able to celebrate together. And so it, it's kind of, um, I don't know how you say it. it's mise en abîme in French. It's um, like, um, you know how when you look into a mirror and, and there's a, or a camera and, and you see the monitor on the camera and it just creates this effect of it's mise en abîme anyway. Um, and it's uh, basically it's like it's it's made it surreal almost to me. And I think back to some of those moments of playing festivals, even, you know, with Sila and Rise playing festivals. And it's just become this kind of a mystical memory that I have. But you know, I'm really keen to, to, to replicate one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To put it mildly. So when you're thinking about those soundscapes, the ones that we've kind of been talking about, how do you think those have affected your music? Well, there's a song that hasn't been made before. Um, a, a throat song that we were able to record a couple of weeks ago and it's the Raven um, sound. And so I'm really excited about that one because I haven't heard a song about it before or like replicating those sounds. And it's really just like, I'm kind of gravitating towards that because it reminds me of my father and that's just like a really important part of my life at the moment. Um, but yeah, there, because we're, you know, imitating sounds in, traditional throat singing it's extremely important in our music there are sounds that are like songs that are you know called the wind or the river the mosquito um there's the dog and the wolf so it's extremely important it's you know one of the things in inuit culture is when you first wake up in the morning the first thing you do is you go outside and you examine your surroundings you see where the sun is at, you see what the weather is like, you see where the animals are. And so it like soundscape is, if that's your environment, then that's, you know, <laughs> extremely integral to our music. And, you know, as indigenous people, it's integral to our, to our beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think as musicians, we're all, um, a product of of our musical upbringing and that's everything that we've heard over the course of our life you know so whatever music you're exposed to whatever sounds you're exposed to i mean those are going to form your identity as a musician if you're you know you're being honest and you're you're outputting what's what's really what's come through you you know and so i think as artists it's just trying to keep keep yourself from you know, getting buffeted too much by the winds of change and, and by what's trendy and what, what other people are doing and to stay true to the vision that you've been building and you've been building it slowly over the course of your life. And so, you know, I hope I can, I can be, you know, a good channel. I hope I can, I can represent, you know, the beautiful cultures that I've been so blessed to learn, whether it was, you know, my time spent in New York learning from, from the house dancers, some of the original house dancers who came up with the style and, and taught me about the music and, you know, the influence of the loft, uh, David Mancuso's loft in New York and, you know, the, the whole approach of, of, of DJs, you know, from then all the way up until now. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think I'm a product of, of what I've experienced and, you know, I hope to, to keep being able to represent that in a, you know, in an honest way. Mm -hmm. And what was your immediate reaction to the soundscape clip you received from the Anchorage Museum? 
Oh, it was cool. It was a very, um, it was, it was stark and, uh, and it immediately transports you to, to that place, which I've never been to, <laughs> but I've only been there in sound. And so, um, but it's, it's a beautiful, it, it definitely feels open and vast, I would say. Do you think your relationship to it changed in the process of creating your project? Sure. I mean, I, I didn't have a relationship to it before. So <laughs> it was like introduced to the soundscape and, and I think what we created. And I mean, you know, from, from our perspective also, like if I can talk about the story of, of how the recording came to be, the, we were, the day that we recorded that we were, it was an insane day because we got up at like four in the morning and we were on, um, there was a, it was a pretty major TV show that's pretty well known in Canada that was doing a piece on us. And they had, they had taken us to this remote little, um, it's actually like a skating, um, it's like a, like almost like a theme park for skating where you skate through the woods. And so it's like this, this trail through the woods and there was a little, um, you know, it's, it's kilometers long and you just keep going through the woods on this little, you know, the track is maybe, I don't know, 16, 20 feet wide and you skate through the woods. So we had done this thing early in the morning. We we're already tired. It was only like 7.30 in the morning. And then they're like going to the next place. And they took us to this restaurant, this beautiful restaurant in a, in a town in, uh, in Quebec, just north of here called Wakefield. And it was right on the river. And it was this very rustic little restaurant, a very, very busy restaurant with tons of stuff going on. And they're setting up this TV shoot. And then we were in the back and I had my little, probably like similar to what you've got a little zoom recorder. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we were, we were trying to find a quiet place for Cynthia and Charlotte to record. And we ended up like locking ourselves in the bathroom in this tiny little <laughs> smelly bathroom in the back of this restaurant. So the soundscapes that we were hearing here making the music were, were different from what the soundscape was uh, that we were listening to, you know, so. Oh, wow. That's super interesting that you're probably listening to a bunch of plates and silverware kind of clacking together. And then meanwhile, you're in the bathroom um, kind of dealing with this piece from nature. Exactly. How do you think sound can help people connect to an environment they're unfamiliar with? I think we're when we're presented with different sounds, I mean, we orient ourselves and and there's this whole biofeedback thing that happens. So, you know, we, you know, and people who are blind, they're the whole, um, their whole brain adapts and they start using parts of the brain that are typically only used for, for visual stimuli. They start to use it to, to analyze and to make sense of auditory stimulus. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're extremely affected by sound and, you know, tempo, you know, intensity, the timbre of different sounds. I mean, they all have a huge effect on us. And there's this whole biofeedback thing that's happening. So I think, especially with a good stereo recording, I mean, you're, you're really putting yourself into a different world. And all you have to do is just close your eyes and it can transport you somewhere. Mm -hmm. So after listening to your soundscape, the, the piece you made, what do you hope people will take away from it? With any you know, Inuit throat singing that we record, we always want people to take away a piece of knowledge about Inuit culture, about who we are, you know. I feel like sometimes we get forgotten about. We've got such a small population. Um, in Canada, we've got like 60,000 Inuit, and then, you know, there's Inuit in Greenland, Alaska, and in Russia, 
but for myself, we're such a minority, even among Indigenous groups in Canada. And so whenever I give a piece of myself, you know, creatively, what I want is for people to feel like they took a, a part of like Inuit culture and they're taking something away for themselves, you know, that, that we are here, that we're alive, that we're still practicing our culture and that we're a very strong and proud people and like we want people to know that we're here. So that's just kind of my, that's my experience when I share my, just share a piece of myself. I just want, I want people to see Inuit. In this final conversation, I talked to Matthew Burtner, an Alaska-based composer who explores embodiment, ecology, polytemporality, and noise. Matthew responded to this soundscape of Nuixit. And this is his remix. Here's Matthew Bertner. Do you remember the first time that you were introduced to music in a way that resonated with you? Well, I uh, I did study music when I was younger, but I wasn't that excited by human music. Um, I was very impressed by environmental sounds, particularly the sounds of of the wind and the sea and you know my family lived for years in the bush and so we were living closely with a natural setting and those sounds to me were more impressive on just kind of a purely visceral sonic level than music that i heard mm -hmm. even though i appreciated the the intimacy uh and the human connection of music I would say that probably the the experiences that that I remember that are most important for music were uh, on the one hand just kind of singing or you know playing an instrument in the 
in the outdoors, um, just as we would do, you know, that sort of dialogue between something that's human created and something that's, you know, of the natural world was really uh, impressive to me. And, and I also remember the, um, when we lived in Nooksit, I remember the uh, performances at the school gym uh, as being pretty impressive, the drumming and the singing uh, and the, the sports and, and all that that was happening at the, um, in Nooksit itself. And I, I found that really exciting as a kind of multimedia event. And um, in some ways, I think that that, that early experience with, with performance kind of provided a, a, a model that I've pursued in a very different way um, even as I studied music outside of Alaska and have really become entranced by, you know, avant-garde music composition and the, and the European traditions and just, you know, really experimental traditions. I think that even as I, as I became really fascinated with those, uh, that style of music, that type of music, I um, still draw on those early experiences of music in Alaska as a source of inspiration. Can you describe the music that you make, the the music that you kind of describe as avant-garde avant or experimental music? Yeah. So, you know, for me, it's um, a lot about how the, the ear and the imagination interact. So I, I'm really interested in in music that makes me think about things at the same time that it makes, you know, that it, it impresses me orally and and that I that I appreciate it as just a pure kind of physical experience. I like both of those things. I like the textures of sound, the resonances of things, and I also like the intellectual um dimension of art and, and i think in many ways that's this is very common for art but it's less common in music we we don't often expect our music to work like art uh, to inspire us and and kind of provoke us into thinking things so i try to you know make provocative music um that is it's not it doesn't always conform to our expectations of what music might be and to me that's that's a that's desirable that's something i i want to explore that's what gives it character and differentiates it from something else do you have a specific situation that you think helped shape you as a musician well i gotta say that there's this kind of there's a number of these things and um uh but 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 one of them that really kind of set me on a path was um initiated by my teacher, my saxophone teacher, whose name is Hal Nonneman. He was a, a really great uh, teacher. He ran the King's Lake camp and, uh, you know, would give me saxophone lessons. And one time, um, you know, he would bring me music all the time to play and I always played it. And, uh, and then he would, you know, we'd talk about it and he'd ask me, oh, what do you think of that? And I was always pretty, you know, <laughs> pessimistic or negative about it. I was probably like a terrible student, <laughs> but, uh, 
but anyway, one day he was just kind of like, you know, you should just, you know, write something next week, you know, instead of learning something that I'm going to give you, why don't you make up something and um, bring it next week and we'll talk about play that and talk about it. And so that week I worked on a, a piece and the next week I played it for him. And that was a really, that was a turning point for me because it, 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 it activated music composition as a, um, as a part of, of music. And, and that became really, after that, I wasn't as interested in playing music that was already written, but rather wanted to write my own music. And so that kind of set me on a, on a path that I would say that's definitely a, a, a critical moment for me. Yeah. Formative moment. That's interesting. So when you were composing this piece, I mean, what was kind of going through your head where you're like, oh, this is weird, or I'm going to do this because it's the antithesis of what I've been learning in class or what? Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. Um, I definitely, you know, was feeling that it was presented in a context of like, well, I've shown you things that exist in the world. And if you don't like those things, then what do you imagine that doesn't already exist in the world? Mm -hmm. So... So make make something that you want to hear that isn't already there. So the the, the context in which that that assignment was presented to me is is that, and and I think that that has also formed a kind of way of of making music. So we have obviously lots of great music that's already been written and it's perfect and it's wonderful, and um, why recreate that? You know that's already there. It's I mean. We could try, I guess, but that music was made perfectly by the people that made it based on their experiences. Why should we try to recreate something that was already done? Rather, what doesn't already exist in the world? Let's make that. So <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of philosophy of this. So when you're creating music that that you don't want to sound like something that's already been done, what types of instruments do you use? Well, yeah, so I, I use a lot of different instruments. And as a composer, I'm often called on to write for instruments that I don't play, instruments that I that I don't necessarily wouldn't think about writing for automatically, but that's the assignment, right? Someone mm -hmm. calls me up and on some of the, hey, compose us a piece, you know, our instrumentation is blah, 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 blah. And then you, you, you just make the piece for them. Um, so many times the instruments that I'm writing for are not uh, uncommon instruments. The way of playing them may be uncommon. The the notes that I choose may be not um, common. But but uh, sometimes I'll invent instruments, and that's you know the, one of the most um, exciting areas of research for me is to imagine the sound production mechanism itself as a part of the creative process. That for me has been mostly done through computer instrument design. Um, I have made physical instruments, but it's not my area of, of specialization. Rather, I tend to work on computer, computer modeling and um, computer programming, and I'll build something in a computer that then makes a sound uh, that, I, that I'm excited about. And that's, that instrument is you know, maybe something that, that we haven't heard before. Um, when I started doing environmental computer music, 
uh, it was really like the idea of getting into computer music was to be able to model environmental systems at the waveform level. So I was thinking of, you know, how could you recreate the wind um, with a computer? Mm -hmm. And I and I tried it with instruments. And you can of course make instrumentalists play sounds that sound like the wind, um, and that's that's you know that works really well. But it's also not really idiomatic for those instruments sometimes. You know, if I make a flute player play a bunch of air sounds, it might sound cool, but you know, the flute was designed with keys and, and with particular kind of function to resonate that tube and to make pitched sounds. So I'm only really using a small part of that instrument and a small part of the musician's skill set in that case. It seemed more idiomatic to do sound synthesis on the computer and work with like filtered noise generators and stuff like that. And so, you know, I, I went into computer music for the for the noise that I felt was, you know, maybe um, not as idiomatic for the acoustic instruments. Can you think of a piece that you've composed that made you think, wow, that's really different? <laughs> um, <laughs> you mean of my own of my own piece like what what i made yeah. up that um well i would i would say that you know the the meta saxophone was was an instrument that i designed that um allowed my saxophone to interface with the computer and then access all the world of of computational sound through the manual interface of the of the acoustic saxophone. And I very often felt like when I was playing, or I should say I, I very often feel like when I'm playing the meta sax that um that I that it's really it's really different because you know you could be playing the instrument and you're playing notes and and changing the the timbres of the acoustic instrument, but meanwhile there are microphones inside the saxophone that create these kind of um, electric signals. And then your fingers are e all controlling um, computer processes that are processing those signals and the acoustic signal. And you very often get into a, a kind of mysterious musical space where the results that are coming out of the speakers and the sound around you is not it's 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 like more than what you're putting into it. It just kind of all synthesizes into this really kind of big, fat sound world that's so amazing. And when you're playing it and you aren't, you know, you don't know how you're doing it, but it's happening. That's like pretty uh, a pretty amazing experience. It's kind of like surfing, maybe you know, where the wave is, you're just riding the wave and you know you're doing it, but you don't know quite how. <laughs> how that's happening. I mean, yeah. shouldn't you be falling over? Like what's going on? <laughs> Why is this working? You know, it's just kind of amazing at the same time that it's going on. So I would say those pieces are. Do you ever feel like you're discovering new alien music? Well, I, I mean, I think discovery is a big part of, uh, a big part of this. Um, you know, you, you, I feel very often like I work in, in stages, with music, I I work as a uh, like a, a scientist, like a philosopher, mm -hmm. and then as a, a as a composer. So a kind of 
procedure, work on procedures with music, and then as a performer where you're trying to interpret those things, and then as a listener. In all these ways, I feel really in a different relationship with the work, and, and I'm very kind of conscious of switching my roles in relationship mm. to the art as it comes together. So the, the, the artwork is becomes, or maybe it always is, I'm not sure, I haven't really thought about this, but it becomes external and then you work on it much like a sculptor works on the block of you know stone mm -hmm. um except it's not there is no stone there's just sound it's just this kind of you know this ephemeral thing that doesn't really exist at all uh outside of the moment but yet you work on it as if it's a piece of stone um and work on it as different ways you know just like the sculptor would work as you know use a chisel and then use a hammer and maybe use a some sort of I don't know, something to rub it. It's like you change the way that you're working on this. You work on the concept, work on the technology, work on the 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 notes and the rhythms, work on the interpretation, work on the notational score, and then work on listening to it. You know, it's like all of these creative dimensions to the musical work. And I think the the sound artist is really has to kind of change their relationship to it um, many times. How do you think your relationship to music has changed over time? I think that, um, that I have a lot more respect for the mysterious and well, the, the, the uncontrollable aspects of music, I guess. I, I don't want to say metaphysical, but, but it's like, those things that that are um, just unknown, like magical. I, I used to feel like I could code everything and control everything and make it. And now I'm rather find myself working through procedures that get me to a place where I can't control it. And I and I and I feel that that feeling of being out of control. And that is the best, the best part of the art is just trying to achieve that state where it's become something more than what you could create and then just try to like stay in that space. I think that's something, you know, that that at early on would have made me a little bit um, nervous if I was out of control of the, the artwork. But now I actually like seek that, that chaos and that out of control feeling. Do you feel like you've learned to be comfortable in those moments of chaos? Yeah, I prefer it. I feel like I feel uncomfortable when those things aren't are happening around me. And that might be just, you know, a, re a relationship to life in general. Um, you know, realizing that that you know that that it's okay that we're not in control of everything around us and in the world that things are just you know, that that's that's actually beautiful. Like mm -hmm. we shouldn't be in control. We should rather be in dialogue with larger systems of order and disorder and just be participating in that rather than um, owning it or controlling it. Do you think that your current and past understanding of music affects the way that you hear normal everyday sounds? Like, do you hear potential elements of music in everyday sounds? Yeah, so I I think of um, music maybe more more broadly than um, 
you know, than, than maybe other people, but certainly than I used to think of music. Uh, you know, I think music is something that you can hear in the world everywhere. And, mm -hmm. and also not, it's not necessarily related to sound. Um, the music can be something that you just imagine, right? It's, it's in your head as well as in the air. So you don't have to wait for, <laughs> for some interesting, you know, uh, radiator or uh, rustling tree to hear music in the world. Although you can take the chance when those things appear, when the radiator does kind of buzz and rumble and you're like, whoa, that's a cool sound. Or the tree does kind of shake and, and the branches make a clattering sound. You're like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a musical sound. Mm -hmm. You don't have to wait for those amazing things because our brains are also full of, of the phenomena of sound or the perceived sound even without an in, it without an impulse um so yeah you can hear it in your head which is really quite <laughs> quite something if you think about it <laughs> it seems like it's more closely related in that way or at least broadened to include more of a rhythm how so in that we get into rhythms of life like so if if music isn't necessarily always this tangible thing and maybe it's um a feeling or maybe it's the way that we perceive something so it's a little bit more um metaphysical yeah yeah i i think that's probably that's probably right it's about i mean one thing we can um one defining feature of of music is time I would say more more so than sound probably is time. Um, things and rhythms are the way that we divide up time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the the patterning of of time. So yeah, when we when we when we hear those cycles, hear those rhythms in our head, you know, we're we're projecting um, kind of uh, structures in time through our imagination that's could be heard as music. One thing I would like to, you know, add at this point is that um, when you listen to my music, um, you might like, notice that there's, you know, I don't know how to quite say this, there's a lot happening, right? There's stuff happening. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's not like, um, it also creates a space for contemplation. And I think it's a recognition that, that the listening aspect of music is um, a very active participatory one. So if if we create some space in the music for the listener to just kind of get lost in their own thoughts, imaginations, like maybe their own rhythmic cycles, they will bring that to the experience. And it's like the music is just a kind of, that is the external music, the part that I make is just a kind of inspiration for a listener to you know build their own um creative imaginative world around that structure that's that's not you know just that's 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 something i aspire to to do that's not something that happens randomly like i, I try to create space in the music for the listeners um variability and attention 
or or lack of attention. I mean, that's an equally important thing. Sometimes music that uh, is demands too close attention. You know, if you if you stop, say you daydream for a second while you're listening to something, and then you tune back into the music, you might be lost if you weren't if you missed you know twenty seconds of the piece, you might be lost in the piece. Mm -hmm. But I like a music that that lets you know where you are all the time and you don't get lost. You can reorient yourself. Um, and that's just a kind of, I don't know, that's a, that's a recognition. I think that the, um, that the listener is actively creating the music along mm -hmm. with the, with the sounds in the, in the space. Yeah, I agree. I think that's actually a very, uh, a very cool thought, a very encouraging thought, because it adds this point of accessibility where you don't have to be this kind of constant listener to be able to add to that story or that piece. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The, the, you know, so the, the music may, may still seem, may still be, um, uh, unfamiliar in the sense that it doesn't maybe obey like certain tonal processes or rhythmic procedures but yet we fill in that stuff with our with as we listen to it i mean for the for example it makes more sense to actually listen to the music but you dial up something like glacier music the album glacier music and and listen to that and you'll see what i mean there's you know these kind of connective sonic elements that run through the piece like um a, say a let's say a drone let's say like a single tone or complex that complex of tones that persists uh through time so that it, you can listen to that and you kind of catch the foundation of the work the the foundation of the piece and then it may evolve but it's happening in a way that's related to the um to the ground that it establishes and so in that way it kind of it gives you a foundation through which to just start freely imagining um, and hearing other things inside that that complex. Things that are there for sure, but also perhaps things that um, that aren't there that you're bringing to it with your own imagination, melodies, rhythms that may or may not be in the composed music at all. So you kind of alluded to this earlier, and that is soundscapes. And a soundscape is the accumulation of all the sounds of a given place. What soundscapes do you think have been or are important to you? Well, um, soundscapes are, you know, I think soundscape points to the integrative aspect of, of, of listening. Um, that, that is that unlike our eyes, we tend to hear things more holistically. With our eyes, we parse edges and depths between things. Our, our eyes are very good at isolating things, and our ears tend to rather discover relationships between things. Even though we can spatialize, you know, our ears are designed to um, also sense direction very carefully and, and uh, alert us to things that are, for example, sneaking up behind us. You know, we'll hear it coming, but they, on the other hand, there's this integrative aspect to sound. And, um, and so the soundscape for me is a lot about how things are relating 
to one another, um, which is which is a kind of particular way of um, of engaging with the with the environment. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like the inverse way. So it's, it's actually kind of amazing that we as animals have this uh, ability to you know both look at something and listen to it and and separate it from its context and integrate it into its context with those two senses simultaneously in our brains. I mean, it's an incredible, incredibly powerful dynamic uh, between the eyes and the ears. Mm -hmm. But the ears taken, taken alone sometimes reveal things that the eyes don't see. Um, I, I, you know, I've heard a lot of incredible soundscapes. I tend to prefer soundscapes that don't include humans. That's just been my um, preference. That is getting increasingly difficult to uh, to discover, which makes them more and more rare. And um, you know, but but probably the most uh, revealing soundscapes are those that include human nature dynamics, and we can listen to uh, how humans relate to the environment through this integrative um, perspective of listening. I, I personally have tried to, I haven't done much with human sound um, or, you know, anthropogenic sound in to use soundscape ecology terminology. Uh, that's, you know, just not an area that I've, I've personally explored, but a lot of my students work in that area and um and it's something that we we study very keenly uh because it helps us understand how we relate to the environment mm -hmm. and how do you think sound can help people better understand a place i mean you, you know first you're you're listening to the way things relate as i mentioned before so the way things relate we can hear hear that through sound are they um, for example, are they in the same bandwidth? That is, does one sound cover over another sound? You know, that's an interesting way of discovering the world. Where are they? Where are these coincidences? And how do they set up power dynamics between the sounds in the space? Then after, you know, understanding the, the place, and probably as you're understanding the place through sound, you're also learning about yourself in relationship to that place first because we make so much noise and you notice it when you're listening to a on headphones with a microphone you could hear the all the sound that you're that you're creating the rustling of your jacket your footsteps any kind of movement your breathing we're incredibly noisy and um and so at first it's kind of you know surprising how noisy we are and it's 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 unwanted um usually for most recordists they try to reduce those those sounds the sounds that they make but it also brings up the idea that like if we're so noisy in the environment our presence is definitely affecting the environment it's affecting the sound mm -hmm. um, in the headphones and so it's probably also affecting the other agents in the environment who can respond to that sound so we may very well be you know other things may be quiet because of our presence. And so we change the soundscape by our presence, not just by the sounds we make, but, but because that signals other things to change their behaviors. So I often, you know, personally, 
um, when I, because I'm so noisy and I, I <laughs> typically leave the, the, the play, I'll listen for a while and then I'll just set down my, my re field recorder and just leave and, and I'll go on, you know, a walk and just leave the place and then come back and pick up the recorder later because then later on in the studio, I can hear how the environment um, sounded after my presence dissipated. You know, after a while, the birds come out again, the animals, you know, appear, things that were hiding while I was there, they come back. Um, who knows what, what changes happen because I'm not there anymore. And so then, you know, then you can really discover how it was without the, without the person. Mm -hmm. And what soundscape did you respond to? So I was given a, a recording from Nuixit, which is just a lovely little, little sound. It was like, um, maybe a minute long. Uh, so Nuixit is a, is a village on the North Slope. And so it has the sounds of kind of village life, like there's the engines um, of cars. So there's some vehicles in the background. There's wind, of course. And um, at the end of the recording, there's a ptarmigan on the on the recording. And so my my piece is is kind of looking at all three of these these elements, the wind, the the ptarmigan and the vehicles. Um, those were the kind of distinctive features, in my opinion, of that, of that field recording. Mm -hmm. And what was your reaction to that soundscape when you heard it? Well, um, so I was asked to create a piece of music using or inspired by that, that soundscape. So my, you know, my, my immediate reaction was, um, you know, how is this going to be? How how can how can I use it? Right? How, how yeah. can I find? Can I can I use the sound? Can I use like the idea? Like, what is it about it that's going to be useful? Um, what what really struck me about it? It's the quality of the soundscape is not very good. That is the recorder. It wasn't designed to be um, used, you know, as a sample. Right? The way that like an electronic musician would record a sample to use in a in a work, it would be a different, a different kind of recording. This one was really designed as a kind of audio acoustic monitor of the, of the place. So, mm -hmm. um, so that, I mean, that's just to say that it has like a lot of like distortion, like probably, I don't know, 50% of the recording was completely masked by wind distortion which is super interesting because the wind is always blowing up there. And that's one of the distinctive features of the Arctic um, is that you just, there's nothing to obstruct and shelter you from the wind. So the wind is like constantly uh, in your ears. And, um, and so that makes a lot of sense to me that the recording would also have that kind of, you know, distortion from the wind. So definitely the wind was a big part of it. And that masking aspect, the, the sounds of machinery, you know, when I lived in Nuixit, um, the village was just founded and they, the founders put it there because of the emerging um, oil fields and the North Slope oil field was just getting going. And the idea was to build a village, you know, in the Arctic on this land 
that would one day be um, very valuable to the people because the oil would be traveling across that land. Um, and indeed, that was, uh, you know, that that came to pass. But now in Nuiqsut, there are oil fields all around. Uh, when you look on the horizon around the town, or you look on Google Earth, you can see them. There, there are, uh, you know, uh, structures surrounding the village. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, a big change since I since I lived there. Uh, so those machines are, you know, ever present, um, the sounds of humans machines. The, those aren't just any machines, they're, they're particularly machines that are driven by combustion engines. So, you know, they're running on the oil, <laughs> the refined oil mm -hmm. that, that they're, that they're pulling out of the ground there. So that's, that's also very interesting. So my piece is written for a 55 gallon oil drum, which, which wasn't in the recording, but I added it. And then, um, and the sounds are all resonating through this oil drum. And that's kind of connecting to that combustion engine that we hear in the field recording. You know, that that's what's so great about you explaining this is, you know, I, I guess specifically, I really liked what you said about the wind being a relevant element in the soundscape. Because I think to many people who work in audio, if there was wind in it, you'd be like, oh, this this audio is uh, defective. You know, there, there's something wrong with this audio now because of the wind, but you're looking at it as a plus. Yeah, that's right. And the, the, the wind is playing the microphone, right? The wind is the wind when it, when you're an audio engineer and you put your mic out and the wind is distorting the microphone, that's an unwanted sound. And we try to, we, we try to, you know, block that. We basically use all sorts of zeppelins and furries and, you know, preparations of the mic to keep the wind from doing that. Um, another way of looking at it is that the wind is playing the microphone. The wind, the patterns of the wind are activating the diaphragm and, and, and sort of drumming it. And when it drums it, it makes that distortion sound. <laughs> All those unwanted sounds are actually the result of a natural system uh, performing the physical body of the microphone, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What do you hope people will experience or take away after listening to your piece? Well, um, there's a lot in that piece, actually. There's like, like you were saying, stories. There's like a personal story in the piece, which I find, you know, really touching on a personal level. And then there's like more kind of um, symbolic uh, conceptual levels to the piece. For example, the 55 gallon oil drum as a as a reverberation that's added to the sounds. Um, I hope that people will reflect on our complex relationship to the environment. That is, you know, we rely on the environment for our life, of course. Um, and we also, you know, rely on it for our happiness. And, you know, we, we engage with it and we love it. And at the same time, you know, we are not taking care of the environment. We are mining, you know, non-renewable resources. We are, you know, 
combusting fuels that like pollute the atmosphere and change the environment that in fact in our in our state they they cause these greenhouse gases that cause global warming that melts the permafrost that changes the place itself mm -hmm. so there's a very complex relationship between the human and the natural world embodied in the concept of this piece that there's you know the both the combustion engine sounds the the oil drum itself and then on the other hand there's this beautiful ptarmigan at the end of the field at the end of the field recording that i got there's this little ptarmigan sound and that became um a feature for me in the in the piece so at the end of the composition you'll hear the the sound of the ptarmigan and you know that's another kind of call to the land like the oil was the call to the for the people to set up the village they were not just drawn by oil but also because they love this place because of the beauty of the natural world and the animals and you know they're living in a way with very close to nature so the piece kind of embodies that dynamic and that conflict that is so at the core of of our experience of the environment in alaska and probably you know humans experience in the world for more information about the anchorage museum visit anchoragemuseum.org this podcast was produced by me cody liska for the anchorage museum with additional help from julie decker and hollis mickey Chattermark's theme music was produced by Keezy Baby. Additional music was produced by David Betchkel, Rise Ashen and Charlotte Kamenuk, and Matthew Bertner. <laughs>